take our Bibles, we're in Galatians chapter 2. I will begin at at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the powerful word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. So for two weeks now, I've identified this problem of approval that um, we've been talking about. And I've shown you that the fear of man is a pervasive trap that rears its ugly head in many different areas of our lives. Uh, two weeks ago, from Proverbs 29:25, I showed you the uh, problem of being addicted to approval. And from that text, which says, The fear of man lays a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe, I tried to show you that the fear of man can show up in so many different arenas of our lives. And I tried just to elevate this idea in your mind of the problem of the fear of man, so you could see just the scope and the breadth of it. And then last week, we looked at the fact that Um, approval, addiction, really comes from an idol in the heart. So first week was kind of the breadth, last week was the depth. I wanted you to see that that really the fear of man is using people to get what I want. So I may have an idol, but I want to control that idol because I want to feel a certain way, so I use people to try and fill a a God-sized hole in my heart. And we saw where that goes. I've tried to help you understand the, the scope and the depth of this problem. A few of you have asked me, so when do we get to the solution? Well, that's today. Um, I want to try and help you understand um, how the gospel relates to all of this. But I will tell you also that understanding what the problem is and, and really clearly seeing it, or if you will, becoming more approval aware, actually gets you about halfway there to the solution. I think you'd acknowledge, like I would, that you know, when you're in a discussion with somebody, maybe you have a, an argument with your spouse or trying to figure out uh, a, a tense conversation, 
You ever had this where you just thought, what exactly is the problem here? Well, what exactly is the issue? And when you can identify what the issue is, then it makes it much easier and much more effective to be able to determine the solution. And so too it is with this issue of the fear of man. That just by raising your awareness of the fear of man, helping you understand that this approval problem really gets the best of us, if I can just get you to stop and think instead of just feeling all the time, or to ask yourself, who is my God and what am I thinking and I don't really have a right to feel this way. What's going on? If you're there, boy, you're halfway home in terms of the overall solution. So identifying the problem is a critical part of the solution. But that's not all. Today we're going to look at the next step. A friend of mine says this, that the power of no is in a stronger yes. And today I want to show you the stronger yes of the gospel as it relates to the problem of the fear of man. And particularly what I want to show you is the way in which the gospel gives us promises that serve as fear-conquering yeses to all the things that are going on inside of our hearts. You could boil my message down to this simple statement. Winning the battle over the fear of man comes by treasuring gospel promises over approval promises. So what I hope to show you today is that the approval junkie believes a lie. He believes a promise. He or she believes something that that approval is offering him or her. And the way in which you conquer the fear of man is by treasuring gospel promises. What God has told us in his word about himself and who we are and everything that relates around to what the gospel is. And that by treasuring the promise of his word and the promise of the gospel That moves us a lot further along in winning this battle with the fear of man. So I hope to show you the triumph of the gospel over approval. Now, Galatians 2 is our text. And I need for you to understand that Galatians 2 is not explicitly about the fear of man. Rather, Galatians 2 is about the purity of the gospel. Set in the context of a broader book on the whole nature of what faith is and grace But in order for you to understand what's really going on in Galatians 2 about the purity of the gospel, you have to understand that the fear of man is all over this story. So while Galatians 2 isn't primarily about the fear of man, the fear of man is within this text. And I want to be able to show you that. Now, in order for you to understand what's going on in Galatians 2 and how that relates to the gospel, you have to understand a couple other background issues. You've got to understand a broader context of what's kind of swirling around in the church during these days. You also have to understand the difference between Jerusalem and Antioch. And then you have to understand what's really going on in Galatians 2 as it relates to this conflict between Paul and Peter. So let's begin by just trying to figure out what the broader context is. Take your Bible and go over to Acts chapter 10. As you're turning there, let me just give you a summary. One of the early things that was just swirling around the church after Jesus was not only raised but ascended to heaven was what does what do the followers of Jesus do with the fact that Jesus said that he fulfilled the law and the prophets? It seemed as though there was a new day dawning as it related to how one comes into a relationship with the Creator. You see, in previous days, in order to be part of God's family... That was completely rested on a particular nation, the nation of Israel. 
So in order to be part of God's family, you had to become an Israelite. You had to become Jewish or a proselyte, if you would. And that meant that being a part of God's family meant that you kept all the Old Testament laws, all the purity um, issues that went along with that. And, and along with that, you practiced the circumcision. And so that puts you into the body of Christ. Well, at, or, or the body of um, the nation of Israel, God's family. Well, after Christ comes and he fulfills the law and the prophets, the question then is what... What is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles who believe in the same Christ? What, what, if you will, um, does a Gentile have to do? Does he still have to become Jewish? What do we do with all these laws? What do we do with circumcision? What do we do with these purity laws, the sacrificial system? All of these things, what do we do with this? And, and this is what's, what's swirling around the, the church after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And you need to understand, this was a very, very big deal. Enormous conflict, attentions, because for, for centuries the church, um, or the people of God had acted in a particular way, behaved in a certain way, and so much of their religious and their culture was all tied together, and now things were changing. Well, Acts chapter 10 is the account of God's decree to, pe- to Peter that he is to go and preach the gospel, not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And it records the story of Cornelius, a devout Gentile, who receives a vision that he is to go and to summon Peter. And what's very interesting about this story is that just after Cornelius receives this vision, Peter also receives a vision. Look at chapter 10 and verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey, they are the people who Cornelius sent to go and find Peter, as he was instructed by God. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. These are unclean animals in here. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. In other words, there's something new that's happening. Peter, I've called these things clean, don't you call them common. And this uh, this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter has this dream, and it's strange to him. Verse 17, when Peter was inwardly perplexed, so he's like, what's going on here? And while this is happening, and as he's trying to figure out what this vision means, the men sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So it's amazing providence here that while this this vision from Cornelius happens and then Peter's trance and this vision happens and then suddenly when Peter is trying to figure out what's going on, there's a knock at the gate and here are Cornelius' men ready to take Peter to go and preach the gospel to these Gentiles. So Peter goes. And what we find very interesting is what Peter says as he enters the house of Cornelius. He says in verse 28, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company or to go to one of another nation. So what Peter's saying is by even being here, by coming to your house, I'm breaking all of the scruples of my tradition. And then he says, But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So there's the tension. 
Well, the story goes on, and eventually Peter preaches the gospel to all the people that are at Cornelius' house. Um, a number of them repent, they receive Christ, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and the effect, verses 44 to 48 of chapter 10, is that Peter says, look, this is look what has happened, can anyone prevent them from being baptized? And the answer is clearly no. In other words, Peter was able to see firsthand that when the gospel is preached to Gentiles, that God's Spirit comes and they're genuine converts. They don't have to become Jewish. No circumcision, no, no rites, no becoming underneath the nation of Israel umbrella. These people are now fully baptized by the Spirit of God, and it happens by a sovereign work, and so therefore Peter is wrestling with this Jewish-Gentile issue, and he's seen it for his own eyes. So then he goes back to Jerusalem. Look at chapter 11 and verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contested with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. So in spite of the fact that a movement of God's spirit had happened at Cornelius' house, when Peter came back, he heard all about how he was um, not scrupulous in his um, following the, the laws, the rules, the regulations of Judaism, and he was called on the carpet. Now eventually, if you were to read on in chapter 11, verses 4 to 18, Peter explains it to them, and these uh, the people seem to embrace the fact, even maybe they were persuaded, that um, God really was doing a work um, in the hearts and lives of these Gentiles. Now, this story is important for you to understand the background of what's happening in Galatians 2. Because while the church is is wrestling after Christ's ascension with, with persecution and so many issues, one of the major issues in play is, again, how do Jews and Gentiles relate to one another and, and does a Gentile have to become Jewish? And what are all the things that are, that are taking place? And there are people on both sides of this issue with very strong opinions and centuries of traditions that are on the line. Now, that's what's going on kind of in a Jewish frame of reference. There's another city that you need to be aware of, and that's the city of Antioch. Antioch was a, a region where some people who fled persecution after the uh, martyrdom of Stephen, they preached the gospel to these peoples, primarily a Greek uh, city, and a number of Gentile people received the gospel. The effect of that was that this church in Antioch became kind of the cutting edge of gospel expansion. It, it was sort of like the, um, the epicenter of what was happening in the Gentile world, and a major movement of, of of receiving Christ and people becoming believers happened in that church. In fact, it was in this church that the word Christian was first used. So this is a thriving area of mostly Gentile believers who had received Christ, and the church in Jerusalem heard about it, and so they sent Barnabas to go and check it out. Um, Acts tells us this, Acts um, 11.22 Barnabas was sent to figure out what's going on and to encourage the church. Well, while Barnabas is there, he also invites Paul to come and serve alongside him. No doubt Barnabas saw what was happening and said to Paul, look, this is the cutting edge of gospel ministry, you've got to come. And so Paul came to Antioch and they served together there for a year. And this was the place where they were living out the gospel in this non-Jewish context. Now, that's the wider scope, a little bit narrower, now to Galatians chapter 2. So take your Bible, go back over there. The conflict between Peter and Paul in our text is set in the context of the swirling controversy as to whether or not Jews and Gentiles could be in the same room together, be in the same house together, believe in the same Lord together, and, and, and have 
certain levels of obedience that aren't related to Judaism in the past. And the whole context is set in the church at Antioch. So, look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, When Cephas, this is Peter, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So here's the conflict. Paul is going to confront Peter and he confront him in, a, in front of a large group of people and now he, he explains why. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So before certain men eating from James, these are people who came from Jerusalem. So apparently what happened is that while Peter was there in Antioch with this Gentile believer context, he was enjoying all of the freedom that he had in Christ. He was eating and fellowshipping with these Gentile believers. So just imagine, a little bit of license here, if you will. Imagine that after the, the morning worship service, they all have lunch together. they got a big table, and everyone brings in food, and, and they're enjoying fellowship and really having a great time. And, and Peter's even enjoying the food, some food probably that he hadn't eaten before. And he's enjoying this fellowship with all these Gentile believers. And for the Gentile believers, this is a big deal. Because here was Peter, one of the pillars of the church. He's endorsing their newfound freedom in Christ, and he's come in their direction. No longer do they have to become like him now he's actually become like them and in the freedom of the gospel here is peter who now is living like a gentile except for when certain people come from jerusalem and that those are the fellows who come from james so what what the text goes on to tell us is that those men came from jerusalem to visit antioch and when they came to visit the church in antioch these men from james peter changed his behavior look at what the text says Again, verse 12, for he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing, there's the fear of man, fearing the circumcision party. So, again, a little bit of license. Imagine this, you got this table set up with all this food, Gentiles worshiping and and eating together, and then when Peter finds out that the group from Jerusalem is coming, he decides he's going to set up a separate table for the Jewish folks. Because, you know, they're not ready to eat with Gentiles yet. And I can imagine what's going through his brain. He's probably thinking, you know what, they're going to be offended. I don't want to cause an issue. And so therefore we're just going to do separate um, tables and that way everybody will be happy. And so we'll just put this little table to the side because we wouldn't want the, um, the Jewish folks to be offended that I'm eating with Gentiles. And remember back to, to um, Acts chapter 11, we've already seen that when Peter acts in this manner, he gets it. And so here it is, these men are coming from James, and sure enough, Peter draws back, and then it says he even separates himself from the Gentiles, so apparently Peter sat at the Jewish table, and the pressure of that environment was so great that even Barnabas, who had been there for a long time, did the same thing. So you can just catch the image. I mean, you can see this, can't you? Peter's worried about the pressure of these guys coming, sets up a different table, goes and sits with them. Barnabas joins them. And this whole environment is a mess because the fear of man has taken over. And Paul sees this thing and with gospel clarity says, this is wrong. And he calls Peter out in front of all of them. What's amazing is that Paul doesn't just call them out for their inconsistency. He actually calls them out for how they were violating the essence of the gospel. 
And in Paul's argument as to what should be done and where he was coming from and making the statement, we get a clear sense that his heart was anchored to the gospel. So he's rebuking Peter from his, for his departure from the gospel and at the same time identifying that he's confronting Peter because he's anchored in the gospel. And it all climaxes at verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a loaded passage with so many things. We could spend all day studying what this, this passage is saying here. But at least there's three things. Paul says, I died with Christ. Christ lives in me now, so I'm dead. Christ lives in me. And then he says, and the life that I live in the flesh, so physically, the life that I'm living, my daily walk, I'm living by faith in him who loved me and gave himself for me. So central to Paul's addressing of Peter, central to his confrontation, and central to his actions is the gospel. So the question then is, what is the gospel? I keep using this word, gospel, gospel. What does it mean? And I don't want to assume that everyone in this room or everyone who will you know, listen on a podcast understands what the gospel is. A number of um, months ago, I wrote four paragraphs to try and summarize what I mean by the gospel. This will be familiar for some of you, but I want to review it again because what I'm about to read to you and what I want you to look at in your manuscript are promises When you believe in the gospel, you believe in the promise of what I'm about to read. And this, friends, is the promise that makes the difference between heaven and hell. This is the promise that sets people free from sin and death. This is the promise that you anchor your life to. Listen. There is a triune God who is both creator of everything and infinitely holy. Human beings are natural born sinners. We violate God's law and face death and judgment in hell from a righteous God because of our passive and active depravity. Self-atonement is impossible since every sacrifice would be tainted by our sinfulness. In ourselves, there is no hope for reconciliation with a holy God. Sidebar, in order for somebody to understand the gospel, you first have to know the bad news. You have to know that there is no hope in you. You don't get anywhere in the Christian life until you realize you're the problem. Anything that I do, any sacrifice that I try and make would have been tainted by my sinfulness. Everything that I would do would be, would, would affect the, the, the sacrifice that I would give. So I can never make a pure sacrifice for myself. Now, the good news of the Bible is that the second person of the Trinity became a man. His name is Jesus. He lived a perfect sinless life. He was undeservedly executed on a cross, experienced immense shame and painful separation from the Father, personally bore the punishment for the sins of all who had put their trust in him and rose again from the grave, conquering the power of uh, the curse of sin and declaring once and for all that he is Lord. The good news of the Bible is that a holy God has made a way to be forgiven to be changed from the inside out, to be brought back into a right relationship with the Creator. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, repent of their sins, and follow Christ, the Father counts Jesus' death as sufficient for them, since through Christ the Father adopts them and grants them complete, imputed righteousness. 
The good news of the Bible is that based on the finished work of Jesus, a holy God can forgive me, be satisfied with me, change me, and grant me eternal fellowship with my Creator. Listen, this is filled with promise. Promise, promise, promise. Everything that you believe about the gospel is the belief in a promise. It is that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it is believing that promise in 1 John 1, 9, that new life is created in your soul and the result is that you become a new creature. And it's all based on promise. And this is what Peter Peter neglected. It was this gospel to which Paul anchored his heart and it was living out of this gospel that Paul, the result was that Paul was a free man, a man free of the fear of man and publicly confronted the leader of the church. Question, who was part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter or Paul? Peter. Who was at the crucifixion, Peter or Paul? Peter. Who was a persecutor of the church, Peter or Paul? Paul. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy says, But formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. So we got Paul, who's kind of an outsider, and here he is confronting Peter, and then he has the courage to put it in the book to Galatians about what Peter did. This is a man who understands his identity in Christ. A man who had a bad past. A man who made a lot of mistakes. A man who did a lot of damage to the church. But a man who now was a new creation. So the gospel is a belief in promise. So that's how the gospel helps us. The gospel helps us by pointing us to promise, not performance. A number of years ago when I was teaching through the book of Galatians, I came across this phrase, That we are to live by promise, not performance. And it was like a light bulb went on in my soul. Oh, that's it. That's it. That my life is a life based upon promise, not performance. Legalism is is a life of performance. Trying to to measure up to do things. And the tragedy is, is the more you try and do, the harder you work and the further you come from the reality of what God desires for your own heart and your life. And that is for you to live and to learn to live by promise, not by performance. So, how does the gospel and the promise of the gospel help us with the fear of man? Well, the first thing is this. Is the gospel fundamentally humbles us. So the gospel helps us by humbling us. I cannot be made righteous by my own actions. Nothing that I can do will make me right with God. And so I'm helpless and hopeless on my own. I cannot do it. The only hope is for me to realize that I can't do this on my own and I have to place my hope in someone else, namely Christ. And so the gospel reminds us, first and foremost, you couldn't do this. So it just it takes performance and just grinds it into the ground. You, you'll never be able to measure up. You can't be perfect. So when something comes across your path that gives you or gives others a picture of who you really are, embrace it. Realize that the gospel means that you can be free to be who you really are 
and to acknowledge, I am not perfect. I'm a sinner. I make mistakes. And you don't know the half of it. (laughs) If somebody could see a window to your heart, someone could know the full picture, and God knows all of that, they would be horribly disgusted. Just in, in horribly fearful of what is inside every human being's heart. So your worth doesn't come from what people think of you, but from what God has declared over you. Your value doesn't come from what people think of you, but from what God has declared over you, what He has placed in you, and what He is changing you into. So freedom from the fear of man is found by embracing the fact that you don't have to be perfect. You just have to know and love a Savior who is. Not everyone is going to like you. In fact, if anyone knew who you really are, nobody would like you. <laughs> so we just got to get over that and be like, you know what? If, if you knew who I was, there's no you wouldn't want to hang out with me. You'd be like, get out of here, right? You'd be like, whatever major loser, right? <laughs> like, get out of here. I, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And so the fact that anybody likes us is mercy. Because they don't really even know who we are. So we embrace the fact that the gospel humbles us. We have so much more than we ever deserve. Here's the second thing. It makes me pleasing to God. Here's what also the gospel does. is It makes me pleasing to Him. The Bible calls this justification. Justification means a legal declaration over you through the work of Christ. It means that God has legally and definitively declared two things about you. In Christ, he says, you are absolutely forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. All of your sins are completely covered. That my son paid the debt for your sins. But the scandal of the cross goes even further. It's not only about forgiveness, but God does something more. He not only takes all of your debt and puts it on Christ, but he takes all of Christ's obedience and he accrues it, or puts it into your account. So not only does he cancel your debt, but he also fills your account, such that God now treats you as if you've perfectly obeyed the law. So the crazy, beautiful reality of the gospel is that God has taken the death of Christ and forgiven human beings of their sins, and he declares them to be perfectly obedient, even though all of heaven and every human being on planet earth knows that wasn't actually true about me. It's only true because God gives it to me as a gift. And therefore, you stand before him absolutely pleasing to him, and everything you have is a gift. Therefore, Romans 3.27 says, What then of boasting? Paul says, it is excluded. Because what are you going to say? What did you do that you haven't received as a gift? Everything you have is a gift from God, and therefore it excludes boasting. As a result, being crucified with Christ means that you have this permanent legal position. It means that God has declared over you that you are His child, that Christ now lives in you, that you belong to Him. And living in that promise means that you rest in verses like Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. Who can be against us if God is for us? Answer? No one. 
No one. No one can be against us if God is for us. Meaning, there's nobody who can change the legal declaration over us. You can't change it. God can't change it. Why? Because you didn't do it. God was the one who declared you to be righteous. You can't undo it. The devil can't undo it. God has made you safe and protected in Him. You are forever pleasing to Him in Christ. Romans 8, 37. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nobody can undo this thing. The result is the psalmist says, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me, set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the beauty of being forgiven means that you're fully approved by God. And then to win the battle with the fear of man, we need to learn how to treasure what God thinks of us over and against what other people think of us. The fear of man thrives on a performance mentality. And conquering an addiction to approval means that you put aside the performance mentality and instead you learn to live on promise. You learn to live in light of what the Bible says about you. And what his word declares over you. So that leads us to our third thing. And that is that the gospel gives us promises to trust. So coming to faith in Christ means that you place your trust in God's promises. Promises like if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died and he rose from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. You believed in that. That's how you come to faith in Christ in the first place. The problem is, is that there are many believers who think that once I believed that particular promise, that, that I'm done kind of believing promises. And what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20 is, I have died with Christ, Christ lives in me. And then he says this, and the life I live in the flesh, I live by what? By faith in him who loved me and gave himself for me. So what Paul is saying there is there's this continual process of believing promises day in and day out. Why is that important? That's important because the, 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 the hook of sin is a promise. Even in the Garden of Eden, the devil offered Eve a promise. She saw the fruit. He asked her about it. They got involved in conversation. And he said to her, you won't die. When you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. What is that? That's a promise. And that's what sin is. It's an offering, an attraction of something that offers us a promise of something more. And so too it is with approval. It offers us promises like, I'll feel better if they like me. I won't be lonely if I have friends. I'll be really happy if they just treat me better, etc., etc., etc. Approval offers us promises. This is an age-old strategy of the devil. And how do you defeat it? You defeat it by taking the promise of the word and you fight promise with promise. So let me give you a few examples of how I fight promise with promise. When I begin to think too much about what others think of me, I fight by faith with the promise. What shall we say to these things? Mark, if God is for you, who can be against you? When I begin to crave the affirmation of others, I fight by faith with the promise. Therefore, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. And I remind my weak heart, Mark, your aim in life is to be pleasing to Him. That's your aim. Therefore, live for that goal. And all the promise that goes along with it. When I'm tempted to think that God has forgotten me and I start to place my hope in man, 
I fight by faith with the promise. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope the Lord is. When I begin to worry about what will happen if I do what fearing God requires. Got to do something. I know God wants me to. And I've got to do it. But it's it's scary. I fight by faith with the promise, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. When I fear that people will cause crushing circumstances in my life, I fight by faith with the promise, God is able to make all grace abound to you, that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound for every good work. So i got to decide, which promise am I going to believe? Am I going to believe the promise that this will ruin my life, this will cause crushing circumstances, I'll be miserable? Or will I believe the promise that God never puts me in a position where I don't have grace to be able to make it? And i got to decide, which promise do I really believe? When I'd rather be misquoted, when I'd rather be, rather, excuse me, when I'd rather be quiet than be misquoted, misrepresented, or mocked behind my back, I fight by faith with the promise. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, in negative emails, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak... Oh, that's not in there, is it? Sorry. Uh, sorry. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I throw that in there because I think of a scenario back in my last church when someone got worked up about something. And this is just part of the drill with pastoral ministry and shepherding people. And someone sent me an email. But... Sometimes there's good critical emails and sometimes there's just nasty ones. And this happened to be a kind of a nasty one. And the person at the end said something, well, maybe we'll just leave the church over this. And I see this email and in the back wicked resources of my heart, there's like all these things I really want to say, but I'm not allowed to say because I have to respond in a godly manner. But just once I've wanted to send an email that said, oh yeah, well, why don't you leave? You know, it's a, <laughs> Or I actually thought about writing, oh yeah, well maybe I'll just leave and tell people you're the reason I left. Ha! <laughs> and my heart wants to go there, right? Because I'm ticked off. How can you can say this and I got to be like godly? I want to be unrighteous. <laughs> you know why? Because it offers me a promise. The promise is, oh, it'll feel good. Just tell them what for. Just give it to them. Just do it. Push send. It's calling you. You know I'm, you know what I'm talking about. And the promise, the promise is I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I bank my life on the promise that there's a bigger plan in view here and that godliness with contentment is great gain. When I feel like a failure, or I've disappointed someone despite my best efforts, I fight by faith with the promise, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways. It's fighting the promise, fighting with this promise, Lord, you know my heart. You know what my intentions were, you know what my motives were. When the fear of man has gotten the best of me and I want to strike back in sinful anger, I fight by faith with the promise the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And when I feel like the approval of others is more valuable to me than God's, and I say, why does it matter? What is going on? How come I can't just shake this? I fight this 
thought with this promise, esteeming the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Literally, I've prayed, Lord Jesus, would you remind me that you are right here with me and help me to talk and act and write and speak in such a way as if you were standing right here because you are, even though I can't see you. You see it? See the promise? The snare and the idol of addiction to approval offers us a promise. And here's how you fight, friends. You fight promise with promise. And this is what Peter missed. And this is what happens when you give in to the fear of men. You end up living on the wrong promise. Some of you, however, think that if you just use enough scripture that you're just completely set free and you just are like, you know what, I don't fear people anymore ever again. And let me just tell you, I don't think that's a real world. I think this, I think that victory in this regard, as it relates to approval, doesn't come from somehow living approval free, but rather it comes from never stopping the fight. It's a big difference. Lest somehow you develop a new performance mentality. Because here's what I think happens. We fight and we fight and we fight and we fight. And the end game is not only the victory, the end game is also the fight. Where you're treasuring the promise and treasuring the promise and treasuring the promise and treasuring the promise. And guess what's happening inside of you? As you're doing that, you're becoming more and more like Christ as you are treasuring him more. And Christ is infinitely worthy. So you can infinitely treasure him and never stop. So there's never a day that you get to the end and you're like, oh, it's over. What happens is that over time, you become a better fighter. And you learn how to be able to deal with the internal tension of your own heart. I tried to think of a way to just give you an analogy, an illustration of this. The best one I can come up with is, um, is, is running. A couple of years ago when I started running with my wife, it was amazing how much further and faster she could go. And I, I really came to believe that her heart muscle actually is so much more developed than mine. And she had like three times the lung, lung capacity. I know this because we've been running along and she's having a great time. And I feel like I'm about ready to die. And my body is saying, this is dumb. Shut it down. Just shut it down. Just stop it right now. And we'd be running along. She said, how's it going? I'd be like, fine. And inside I'm like, this is dumb. I mean, I just, and everything in my body is saying, stop, stop, stop. And when, it, when she would, when we get up in the mornings, I'd be like, oh, I hate doing this. And you know what happened over time? The longer I did it, the more often I did it, my body began to adjust and change. And while it was still hard, and when the alarm went off, it was still difficult. The reality was I learned that I wasn't just glad when I was done. I actually developed an appetite of the beauty of the fight in the middle of the run. That I've learned that while you're running, you can actually fight the thoughts of, i got to stop, i got to shut this down. And I learned that victory is not just the time at the end of the race. It's actually being able to make it all the way through and not giving up. And for some of you... My exhortation to you today is this. You don't have to fear people, but you may never be 100% free. And the hope is not 100% freedom. The hope is you don't stop fighting. You see, the joy of the gospel is that God puts over us promise that we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So what happens is the gospel humbles us. It reminds us that we can't self-atone. It makes me pleasing to God. And it also gives me promises that free me to keep fighting. When the engineers built the Golden Gate Bridge, 
part of their goal was not only to build a great and attractive bridge, but also to build a bridge with fewer deaths. Because back in the 1930s, a pretty safe statistic was for every million dollar budget, every million dollars in a budget on a bridge, one person was going to die. So the engineers of the Golden Gate Bridge decided to find a way to build a bridge differently. And amongst a number of other safety measures, the, the one safety measure that made the biggest difference was as old to the circus as it was new to them. And that is for $130,000, they put a trapeze net underneath the bridge, wherever the men were working. The effect was this, that if somebody was working and the winds were still blowing and the work was still difficult and it was still challenging all the elements, none of the elements changed, but underneath them was this net. The effect was is that men, when they worked, would know that if they fell, and a number of them did, that the trapeze would save them. In fact, the San Francisco newspaper began recording the number of lives that had been saved by this net. But what they discovered was not only that it saved lives, but remarkably it changed the work environment. The men on the bridge, now in spite of the winds and, and the difficulty of the environment, they were free from fear of falling. And so they were able to work more efficiently. The, the paralyzing fear of the bridge work was now taken away by this undergirding net that was underneath them. And I would tell you that if you look at your Christian life, underneath the bridge of your walk is the net of justification. It is the net of Romans 8, where God says to you, who can lay any charge to God's elect? It's I. I'm the one who justifies. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And the beauty and the hope of the gospel simply is, is that justification is meant to free you from living by performance, and that the followers of Jesus live their lives by trusting in the promises of God. So you keep fighting, you keep working, you keep doing everything that God wants you to do by His Spirit and by His power, but know that underneath you is this net of the gospel, and the promise of that gospel frees you not only eternally, but it frees you right now to live in light of what God thinks of you while loving other people and not being captive by what they think of you. And the difference, friends, is which promise are you going to live by? And I hope and pray it is the promise of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would use the gospel and the image of a net underneath the bridge as a a constant reminder that we live by promise, not performance. Lord, the challenge with performance is in and of itself is not a bad thing, but when it becomes all-consuming or ultimate, it, it can take away so many things, including our joy, affects our marriage, affects our relationship with you. And I pray today that, Lord, there would be some people who would anchor their hearts back to promise. Lord, there may be some people here today who don't know you as Lord and Savior, and I pray that they might today, having eyes now that can see clearly the beauty of the gospel, might come to faith in Christ. So, Lord, help us. Help us to win the battle, or at least to win the battle with wanting to quit the battle. Now listen, while you're just kind of in a spirit of prayer before we close, I I want to remind you that afterwards there'll be some folks here up at the front, part of our prayer team, who would love just to pray a verse over you or pray a particular promise over you that you just need God to infuse in a a new way in your heart. And if, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know this gospel that we're talking about, 
If you don't know what it means to be fully approved by God, some of these folks would love to be able to share with you how you can know Christ and Him crucified. And in the meantime, oh friends, let us live today by the promise of the gospel and not by the pain of performance. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you. Have a great day.